So Genesis chapter 29 this morning is where we'll be. And if you'll remember with me, um, Jacob has recently had a, uh, you might say, a come to Jesus moment. Um, he has spent a good portion of his life as a, a heel catcher or a cheap shot artist. He's spent his life scheming and trying to get things done in his life by his own strength. And yet God's purpose and his power is greater even uh, than Jacob's name. His name means heel catcher. His name means supplanter, someone who would take something from someone else. And yet uh, God has chosen Jacob, not because he's good, not because he's godly, but because God has chosen him before he was even born. When he was still in his mother's womb, uh, God chose Jacob to make his name great. And I love this because Jacob, his name will in, or eventually be changed to Israel, and the nation that we call Israel today was named after him. And so as you look at the story of Jacob, as you see uh, God's grace and patience and forbearance and his long-suffering with Jacob, I want you to hopefully get the picture that that's us. Jacob is a fleshly uh, man who tries to get his own will done on earth, and despite his own backslidings and his failures and his sin, um, God picks him and does something that only God can do through sinners. And so as we look at his family, what we'll see is that um, Jacob has been running from Esau. His, his mom sent him away. Uh, to come to the place where she was from to get a bride. If you remember the story of Isaac, where Isaac did not go to get his own bride, but his father Abraham sent his servant Eleazar to go and get him a bride from the same place. And you might say, well, isn't Jacob supposed to have a servant go get a bride for him? And my, uh, what I would say is what the New Testament says is that each one of us is saved by grace through faith, and it's not of works, and yet each one of us has our own individual path of salvation. Jesus is the only way to be saved, but not every path that God has. God's not a cookie-cutter God, and so he doesn't have each one of us walk the same through the same things because we, he's trying to boil things out of each one of us that are different. And yet, uh, what he says uh, through the writer Paul is, each one of you should work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Each one of you should fear the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, and let him work in and through you in the way that he wants to individually cook you, if that makes sense. He's, he's making something in us. He's producing faith. He's producing the fruit of the Spirit. And as he does that, each one of us come from different walks of life. Each one of us have a different past. Each one of us have something that is uh, totally different than the other. And yet the all, all of it is Jesus working through us. And so uh, here Jacob is going to his mother's home country, and really Abraham's home country as well in Haran. In Genesis chapter 29, verse 1, it says, So Jacob, and if you'll remember in last week's chapter, Jacob had a vision from the Lord, and the vision was a ladder. And so he laying under this ladder, getting this vision. God speaks to him very specifically in 28, verse 13, and it says, Behold, the Lord stood above this ladder and said, I am the Lord, God of Abraham your father. 
the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south, and in you all and your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So I want you to remember very distinctly this morning what verse 15 says. Behold, that word just means to look, pay attention. I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. This is encouraging to Jacob because he's going somewhere. Wherever you go, I will be with you, Jacob. Sounds like the promise that Jesus made to his disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And behold, I am with you, even until the end of the age. Wherever you go, I will be with you. So he says, I will be with you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, this land of promise. For I will not leave you until I have done all that I have spoken to you. So this is, maybe this is his life verse. This is the thing that he's going to write down and put in his Bible. And every time he gets discouraged, open that thing up and go, no, God promised me this. Maybe some of you have something God's spoken specifically to you, whether it was through the word or through some person, and you just write that thing down, put it in your Bible, use it as a bookmark, and every time you get discouraged, go back. Let that be a rock of remembrance, an Ebenezer, a place where a holy moment that you can go, nope, this is the Lord. This thing seems too big, but God promised. God always fulfills his promises. So verse one of chapter 29 says, Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and saw a well in the field. And behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well, they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth, and all the flocks would be gathered there, and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place and the wells, on the well's mouth. And Jacob said to them, My brethren, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. That's where he's headed. That's the place that he's journeying to. They didn't have road signs. They didn't have mile marker 42. They didn't. So, so he's going, hey, where are you guys from? And if they say Haran, that means he's close because no shepherder is going to walk multiple days to go water his flock. So exit sign, exit now. Here you are. You're at Haran. Then he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? He's looking more specifically for his family. And he's listening for his GPS to say, turn around, recalculating, or keep going. And they said simply, we know him. I find that phrase uh, very subtle and yet very short and very clear. They're saying we know him. They don't go into much detail. We're going to find out later that Laban was probably well known. He was a, uh, maybe this is a bad word, but I hope not, shyster. He was a, he was crafty. He was shifty. Um, He was known for burning people in deals. And he's going to do that in the life of Jacob. And so they said, we know him. So he said to them, kind of pressing, is he well? And they said, he is well. And look, his daughter, Rachel is coming with the sheep. Don't stop talking about him. Here comes his daughter. And so 
Um, then he said, look, it is still high day. It's not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and feed them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together. And they have rolled away the stone from the well's mouth. And then we water the sheep. Now, while he was still speaking to them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. So she's, she's a roamer. She's a, a shepherdess. She was in the field. She was a hard worker. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father. Then it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh, which kind of rings true back to Genesis where Adam is there and he's naming the animals and God produces for him a wife from an element of his side and forms her and then brings her to him, presents her to him. And and Adam responds with what? You are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Whoa, man. And so as he's looking at uh, this relative of his, truly they're from the same, and perhaps he was looking at physical features going, oh, you definitely look like my sister. Uh, but all that said, they're cousins. And so as they meet, what I want to point out is at this point, he's looking for, a, he's going to a family reunion to get his wife, which to us is like, what? You know, uh, you might pick out a state and say, that's what happens in that state, whatever it is. Um, but that being said, in this culture, this was what he was told to do, to go get a wife, a bride from his family. And yes, they were cousins. You might say from this passage, they were kissing cousins. But the deal is, at this point, this was not yet abolished from something they couldn't do. And so while they are related, it's not like it is now. Um, and so God, uh, through this, uses uh, this people. And I reminded you last week and probably the week before that he's getting a bride from the descendants of Shem. Blessed be the God of Shem from early Genesis after the flood. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The people of the land were Canaanites, descendants of Ham. The people of Canaan, according to the word of God, were a cursed people. And, and he wasn't saying that because he's cursing them, but he knew what they would do with their freedom and they would worship other gods. And so they were not to intermarry with the Canaanites. And so we'll see this as a theme throughout the Old Testament. But that being said, we have Jacob here meeting Rachel. Now, remember, Esau, his brother, man's man, strong, burly, hunter. And then Jacob, uh, he was a man that hung out in the house. He was a man who cooked. He, he was a homemaker. And so it's interesting to me that Scripture points out that they typically wouldn't remove the, the cover off the well until all the herds were there because it took 
multiple shepherds and shepherdesses to remove the cover to water the sheep. But all of a sudden, there seems to be this motivation for Jacob as he sees Rachel. All of a sudden, he's compelled, he's attracted, and he's got the strength of 10 men. He's lifting the cover off the, here, let, let me take care of that. Which way to the weight room? Is it over there? Is it over there? Uh, but nonetheless, he is motivated, uh, much like some of the young men in this room, probably, if they see uh, a young lass who they're attracted to, uh, all of a sudden, uh, they're not homemakers anymore. They're men's men. Uh, they're they're going to open the door. Uh, they're going to, you know, drive to the front. They're going to go, you know, do all the things that you do when you first fall in love. And I'm not talking about lust. I'm talking about when you're interested in a woman that all of a sudden I would do anything for her. And I would submit to you that this type of love that lifts, (laughs) love lifts uh, the mouth of the well. And yet uh, what happens in marriages many times is this thing goes away because it's like now I've captured her. I've done all I need to do, and now I'm going to veg. Uh, the problem is, is that if you want to be attractive to your wife still, men, uh, do the first things. Uh, lift, do the heavy lifting. Open the door. Drive to the front of Walmart and, you know, open the door and let her in. You know, the the first love is a very important aspect of marriage, but I'm getting off on a rabbit trail. Uh, the well is a meeting place. It's the water cooler of the Middle East. Uh, they have no uh, rivers, and so they had all these wells. And, and so basically, if you're going to meet people from a town, you'd go to the well. And if you remember our study about Isaac finding his bride through Eleazar, um, if you were going to meet a woman, uh, you would meet them at the well at a particular time when everyone would come to the well, unlike John chapter 4, where uh, Jesus went to the well when no one else would go there. He went when the off the outcast would go. And so uh, the question becomes, do you know Laban? And they do. Okay, do you know Laban's family? How are they doing? And then Laban's daughter Rachel shows up. And Jacob rolls the stone away by himself in order to be a blessing to who he hopes to one day he be his bride. And I believe this is a picture or a type of Christ. Jesus is inside of the tomb for three days. And yet on the third day before the sun rose, the well is opened, the, the well, the spring of life, but it's a tomb, a, a place where we would normally only see death is opened up and life comes out of it, resurrected life, new life by the power of God. And yet that life is offered for the bride of Christ, who he desires to be his bride he, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but instead drink from the well of life. Do you ever think how ludicrous that sounds to the world? That the wellspring of life came out of a nasty tomb? It doesn't make any sense, but that's what God does. He brings life from death. So he rolls the stone away and Jacob Then, after having lifted the stone and kissing Rachel, who he apparently is infatuated with, um, he cries out and he weeps. He shows his softer side, his his real true self. He kind of sheds tears. And and some of you might be the more emotional type. Um, But here, 
verse 12 through 14, he says, hey, we're related. And then he meets up with Laban. A love story, right? So verse 15, then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my relative, and if you remember the end of verse 14, it says, surely you are bone and my flesh. And then I didn't finish where it says, and he stayed with them for a month. So uh, Jacob is going to take up the hospitality in the Middle East, and he's going to stay with his family. And then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Apparently him staying with his relative didn't mean that he just got uh, three hots and a cot. It it meant that he was going to move in with them for a month, and then he was also taking part in the family chores. And so Laban said to him, it's you don't have to live here. Tell me what should your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older one was Leah. That will come into place here. And the name of your younger, uh, her, his younger, excuse me, the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. And so what's interesting about this word delicate is it doesn't mean that she had pretty eyes. It meant that she was hard on the eyes. You've heard the phrase, uh, wow, she's easy on the eyes, or he's easy on the eyes. It's something appealing to the eye. Uh, but there's other things that you look at and you go, wow, that's an eyesore. Um, and, and that's what Leah was, apparently. Now, other commentators say that it wasn't so much that she was ugly, it's just that she had the wrong color eyes. Uh, one commentator actually said that she had blue eyes. Now, in our culture, uh, sometimes blue eyes and blonde hair, everybody's like, oh, she's a bombshell. Uh, but in Middle Eastern culture, it was all about the brown eyes. Uh, they might sing, she's my brown-eyed girl. And so here, um, that's, that's what he's, he's noticing. Her eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now, Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. His intentions were very clear. And so Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man, so stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and notice this, they seemed only a few days to him because of the love that he had for her. Now, true love does wait. It's, it's not afraid to wait. It's not afraid to wait more than a few moments. And I would suggest that if a man is not willing to wait a set amount of time, that he's not actually in love, he's in lust. He has desire, but he has no uh, decision. And so without that decision, uh, this would have been difficult. But It's interesting because, I don't know about you guys, but I read the New Testament, and I see the Apostle Paul, and once he was converted on the road to Damascus, his life went from persecuting Christians to uh, persecuting towards the salvation of whoever would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it, it says in one book that he was shipwrecked for many days, he had suffered many times lashings, uh, 40 minus 1, they would lash him 39 times. Uh, One time he was uh, preaching and they stoned him and he died. The New Testament teaches that he died. They drug him outside of the town dead 
And then God somehow resurrected him. And you know what he did when he was brought back to life? He walked back into the same town and began preaching again. What would compel somebody to persecute and persevere to the degree of death and beatings and mocking? And it, scripture even teaches that his, his eye leaked and that he was sick all the time, and, but nothing could stop him. The rest of his life seemed but moments because, and he would even say that, our light and momentary affliction is how he described his persecution and pain and grief and sorrow and beatings. And yet what I would say to you is that what he would tell the Corinthian church was it was the love of Christ that drove him. It compelled him to keep sharing the gospel message. He knew that he had been loved And he loved Jesus so much that nothing would stop him from continuing to show his affection towards Jesus by just being simply obedient and trusting Jesus. And what's interesting about that is that Jacob, as he's serving Laban for seven years, you're going to find out it's not because he had a good boss. It's because of what motivated him to work was that he loved Rachel. He, lo- he was compelled, you might say, by the love that he had for Rachel. And I want to point out that they had not consummated the marriage. They were not living together. He just, he wanted to love her. He wanted to have her as his own. And see, so he, would, he would go to great lengths, even working for her, her, his father-in-law for seven years. So then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. For my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place, and he made a feast. And it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah his daughter. Notice, Laban took Leah his daughter and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Now recognize that in the, in the marriage, she'd be wearing a veil, she'd be covered Middle Eastern style, and so he wouldn't recognize her other than she was a person walking towards him. And yet late in the night when they go into the tent uh, to consummate the marriage, um, he went into her. Verse 24, and Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that behold, it was Leah. Imagine this, you've just been married and you wake up and you look over and the, the morning light and oh no, this is not what I labored seven years for. How would you, how do you think Jacob responded to that? Oh, simple mistake. No big deal. I bet he was furious. And so as he wakes up, it says there that he said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Now imagine how Leah feels hearing this. I'm sure he wasn't quiet about it. What have you done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, I want you to pay close attention to what he responds. He says, it must not be done so in our country. To give the younger or give preference to the younger before the firstborn. And then he says, fulfill her week and we will give you this one also for the service, which you will serve with me still another seven years. Laban's like, hey, no big deal. You can marry her too. Uh, Just serve your week. Week would be a week of years 
seven years. That's why in the book of Daniel, when he receives the prophecy, it says the the weeks of Daniel, uh, we always interpret them in prophecy as weeks of years. So seven years would be a week of years. And so that's kind of a, a scriptural principle from Genesis. But also notice here he says, it must not be done so in our country. Our custom is that we give the older first preference before the younger. Now this should hit Jacob because Jacob has deceived someone else in a previous chapter in order to gain the birthright and the blessing. So hook, line, and Leah, they have an agreement. Jacob fulfills his word. And guess what? Laban deceives Jacob just like Jacob deceived his own father to gain the birthright. And even before that, he sold his birthright, Esau did, for a bowl of stew that Jacob bargained with him for. Uh, Laban's words must have stung Jacob knowing that Esau had experienced the same thing from Jacob. The sin that he committed against his brother, Esau, he's now had committed against him. And Laban no, but at the same time, Laban's just being practical. He's like, how can I get this guy to stay with me for seven more years? Uh, and he knows what motivates Jacob to work hard, Rachel. And so he dangles the carrot. Well, if he just works seven more years, it's no big deal. I mean, these seven years went by quickly. Why not seven more? And so he knows Jacob's currency, so he knows how to keep him and get some more free labor. And I want you. I want to point out that Laban's not selling his daughters. Uh, there's a difference between selling and a dowry. In their culture, if you wanted to marry somebody, you had to prove that you could provide for them financially. So you would give a set amount of money, whatever you agree on, as a dowry to give to the the husband, or excuse me, the the parents of the bride. But I want to take a minute and point out that Jacob's really just getting a taste of his own medicine. Uh, he's reaping what he has sown. Uh, in Galatians chapter 6, uh, Paul the Apostle writes to the Galatian church and he says, Don't be deceived. <laughs> Interesting phrase as we've studied this passage. Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their fleshly desires... From the flesh they will reap corruption or destruction. And whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap the flesh. If you sow to the things of the Spirit, then the Spirit will be in increase in your life. And I love this because even in Hosea, it says there that they sow to the wind and they reap the whirlwind. And I want to point out three principles of sowing and reaping. Uh, you, those of you getting ready to start your annual gardens, you already know these things, but there's spiritual implications to gardening. Uh, three principles of sowing and reaping. Number one, you reap what you sow. So if you sow uh, uh, tomato seeds, you're going to reap tomatoes, hopefully, right? You're not going to reap cucumbers. You're not going to reap jalapenos. You're not going to reap apples. You're going to sow tomatoes and you're going to reap tomatoes. Uh, you also reap more than you sow. If you put one seed in the ground and you got one plant, 
what good would that do? Except when that plant comes up, it has multiple seeds on it. Some of those seeds will be used for sowing again, and some of those things will be used for eating. That's the fruit, right? You reap more than you sow. And then you always reap later. Many people become believers. And when they become believers, they have things that they've sown in their lives. And when those things begin to grow up and produce fruit, they go, why isn't God taking care of me? Here's the thing. God forgives our sin. He, he, he takes it as far as the east is from the west. Uh, one prophet actually writes that he puts it at the bottom of the sea. And when the new heaven and the new earth come, in the millennial kingdom, guess what? There's no sea in that new earth. Our sins are blotted out. They're taken care of completely. And yet practically, the consequences for our sin before Jesus, we still have to deal with them. Many broken families, uh, many sins that we've committed in the past, the consequences, the fruit that was produced from them, we're not uh, getting away from that. It's going to happen. But in Jesus, God will even use that consequence to drive us even further into his arms. And so God has reasons for allowing those things. All that to say, Jacob is reaping what he's sown. He's reaping exactly what he's done to others. He's, he's receiving that as, as his own. So what's the Christian response to reaping what we've sown? What's the Christian response when, when we receive the same behavior towards ourselves that we've at some point or another done to others? I think that God sends people into our lives that are just like us so that we'll see ourselves more clearly, as if we're looking in a mirror. Uh, but what did Jesus say? In Matthew chapter 7, I'm going to turn there. There's this very famous passage from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? You hypocrite. Boy, Christians don't like that word, do we? The world doesn't either. The world senses a hypocrite many times before we do. But Jesus says to the person who has a plank in their own eye, but they're trying to deal with everybody else's speck, you're a hypocrite. He says this, first remove the plank from your own eye, deal with your own sin, and then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. He doesn't say don't deal with other people's sin. He says, deal with yours first. And then when you deal with your own sin, you'll be able to help others deal with their sin. But guess what? You won't be as high and mighty about it. You'll be gentle, knowing that removing things from someone's eye is a delicate situation. It's, it's a painful thing. You'll be able to walk through it with them with grace and be humble and gentle, just like you needed, kind. And then what did Paul teach? In Galatians chapter 6, Paul taught basically the same thing. If I can get there. I've got all these these uh, bookmarks, but I didn't change them from last week. 
Galatians chapter 6. In verse 1, he says this, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and in doing so, you will fulfill the law of Christ. What was the law of Christ? Love the Lord your God, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Bear one another's burdens, and you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he's only deceiving himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in, in himself alone, and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load, dealing with our own personal sin. And so, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus said this. He said, In everything do to others what you would have them to do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. And then in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul writes, Let us not become weary in doing good. What is that good? Bearing one another's burdens, restoring one another in a spirit of gentleness. For at the proper time, look at this, I don't think it's coincidence, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And that harvest is a harvest of righteousness. We're sowing kindness. We're sowing to the Spirit. And so as we do that, we're responding to those perhaps that have, are doing the same things that we've done in the past, but they're still doing them. And I want to point out something that's interesting about that, that I apparently I didn't put in the slides. Oh, no, it's right there, right in front of my face. Be careful because my sin, and think about this from your perspective, my sin always looks worse when I see you doing it. And your sin always looks worse when you see other people doing it. And it's very easy for Christians, especially, to become self-righteous and go, I can't believe they're doing that. The stuff that drives you nuts the most, stop in that moment when you go, I can't believe, and think, does this thing drive me nuts because I'm sensitive to it because I haven't defeated it yet? Because many times that's the case. The things that drive me the most nuts about other people are typically the things that I haven't yet dealt with in my own life. And it's way easier for me to go, they need to deal with that, than for me to go, how am I going to conquer this thing because it's still wreaking havoc in my own life? It's the plank, right? Now, think about this. If you've got a plank in your eye, what does it look like to everybody else? It looks like a plank. But if I look down that plank, all I see is the end of it, and I'm seeing it on you. And so it's interesting what perspective does. But all that to say, it's interesting, and I don't have a ton of time to share this, but in the story of King David, King David was, his biggest sin that most people point out is that he sinned with Bathsheba. And so in 2 Samuel, in chapter 12, he's not yet repented of that sin. And uh, Samuel comes up to him, the prophet, and he tells David a story about a man who stole another man's lamb, even though that man had plenty of lambs. And he slaughtered it, and he killed it, and he ate it after stealing it from the man that only had one lamb. And so David, being a shepherd at heart, goes, bring the man to me that stole that lamb and put him to death. 
Now, if you took someone's lamb, by the way, the, the law didn't say to stone them to death. He said he must restore it, and he must restore it even more than he took. Never says put him to death. By the way, the sin of adultery was a sin punishable by death, stoning. But David hadn't dealt with his sin with Bathsheba yet. And so Samuel tells this story, he says, this, he tells a story that he knew Dan, or David would get mad about. And that after he got mad, he said, bring that man to me who's stolen that sheep so we may put him to death. And then Samuel famously says to David, you're that man. You're the man that stole the one you lamb. You took, some, you took Uriah the Hittite's wife, you laid with her, and then you had him killed to cover it up. He exposed his sin. And then David stops and he humbles himself and he says, I've sinned against God. And then he writes one of the most beautiful psalms of confession and repentance, Psalm 51. Against you and you only have I sinned, Lord. And so all that to say, God desires a supple, humble, repentant heart. And that's how we approach him. And so uh, Jacob experiences what it means to be uh, taught by your own backslidings. And so as we continue on from there, verse 31, we see that despite the fact that now he has two wives, uh, he's now going to marry Rachel and Laban, uh, Leah. Um, verse 26 says, Laban said, it must not be done. Fulfill her week, verse 27. We will give you this one also. So then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week, and he gave him his daughter Rachel, his wife also. Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. And so the Bible's not, by the way, condoning uh, multiple wives or polygamy, uh, but it just tells the story as is. They're from a culture where that was common. And so Jacob, though he's saved, we saw that in the last chapter, he's also in a point where he's young in his faith and he's going to make some, some pretty bad mistakes. And yet, remember the promise from Genesis chapter 28, verse 15, I will be with you wherever you go and I'll make you multiply as the sand on the seashore. All those promises that God made. And so begins the married with children episode. And if you've ever watched that show, uh, this is way more jacked up than that. And so uh, Genesis 29, verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel remained barren. She was not able to have children. And so what's interesting is that the principle that Jesus gave in uh, the gospel was you cannot serve two masters. You'll either love one and you'll hate the other eventually. And, and multiple brides is no different. Uh, Leah was not loved. She was even, she'll go on to be hated by her own family members, and yet Rachel was loved more than her, and yet it seems as though, through the narrative here, that God actually picked Leah to be his wife. He used Laban, the shyster, to, to make her his wife, but Rachel was chosen by Jacob, and yet Jacob's most fruitful wife will be Leah. And so Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, 
because I've had a child, my husband will love me. And what's interesting is, is the name Reuben actually means, see, a son. And she's excited because she believes that because she's bore a child for her husband, now he will love her more. But I think that's the mistake that many times gets made even now in today's culture. Uh, people in relationships, uh, this guy doesn't love me. Maybe if I give him a child, he'll uh, love me more. Uh, but for those of us that have children, it actually makes it more difficult. <laughs> it, it makes it even more work. And so uh, that doesn't promise anything. But she thinks there's hope. If I have this child, perhaps my husband will actually love me. How sad. So then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. She called his name Simeon, which means the Lord hears. She conceived again and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will become, will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. That's God's desire for marriage, that we would leave our, our father and mother and be cleaved or joined, attached, uh, attachment. And so um, she names him Levi. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and she bore a son and said, now... I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah, and she stopped bearing children. I think this is significant because the names mean seeing, hearing, and joined. And all these three first children, she names them based on the circumstances. I hope that my husband will see me. I I hope that my husband will hear me. I hope that he will be joined to me. And yet in all of these circumstances and these children that she's bearing... What she's finding is that it's God that's seeing her. It's God that's hearing her. It's God that has joined himself to her. And now at the end, rather than trying to seek her the affection of her husband, she just praises God. How many women in her same state would love to have children? This time, rather than seeking my husband's affection, I'm just going to praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for children. Thank you for these sons. And in Middle Eastern culture, if you were barren, it was looked upon as if you were cursed by God. Why don't I just be thankful for these children God's given me? And so this rivalry continues. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 30. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I'll die. And Jacob's anger aroused against Rachel. Remember, this is the one that he loves the most. Uh, His anger arouses against her. And he said, Am I in the place of God whom has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And so she said, Here's my maid, Bilhah. Go into her and she will bear child on my knees that I also may have children by her. Uh, They're still very much descendants of Abraham. They're still very much descendants of the culture he came from. And this was acceptable in their culture. Take my children and the children, my my servant, and the children that they have will be mine. Then she gave him Bilhah, her maid, his wife. And Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God has judged my case, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan which means judging. 
And interestingly enough, he will end up being the tribe from which all of the judges of the book of Judges in Israel come from. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, with great wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister. And indeed, I have prevailed. So she called his name wrestling, which is Naphtali. So when Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob, his wife. And Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, a troop comes. Look at all these kids. So she called his name Gad. And Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, I am happy, for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher, which means happy. Now Reuben went in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. And Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. And she said to her, Is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, Therefore he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. Mandrakes were meant to be a fertility help, uh, perhaps even an aphrodisiac. And so the idea was she basically bought her husband's affection for the night uh, by her son's mandrakes. Uh, much like what happened with uh, purchasing his birthright, <laughs> which happened in Jacob's life, purchased Esau's birthright with a bowl of uh, lentils, a bowl of beans. So when Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night and God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have given my maid to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun, which meant dwelling. And after she bore a daughter, after that she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. And we'll find out later what happens with Dinah. So then God remembered Rachel. God listened to her and he opened her womb and she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, the Lord shall add to me another son. So we see uh, here, Rachel finally bears and names her son Increaser. Now, Benjamin will be the 12th son. So there will be 12 tribes that come from them in chapter uh, 35. And actually, um, he will be named Benjamin, which means son of my strength. Uh, But she wanted to name him Ben-Onai, which means son of my sorrow or my birth pains, because she dies as she gives birth to Benjamin. But I want you to notice that Leah was more fruitful than Jacob's favorite. And so I don't know about you guys, but just the reading through of their dynamics makes me think of a Jerry Springer episode. I mean, it's just like, what in the world is going on in Jacob's house? Immaturity, backbiting. Uh, If this isn't a tight case for anybody that wants to be a polygamist going, that's a horrible idea. I don't know what is. 
But in all of this, they're making decisions, and yet God's not blessing it because it's his best. He's blessing it because he's chosen Jacob, and he's going to make him fruitful. And through his descendants, he's going to bless the entire world. Uh, Judah will be the son through whom the son Jesus comes through. And so God's involved in every aspect of all of this. And yet, I want us to remember, it's because God promised to be with Jacob wherever he went. Wherever he went. And Jacob's family dysfunction cannot cause God's plans, purposes, and promises to malfunction. Think about that. I don't know one of us in here, more than likely, that has no family dysfunction. So take heart, be encouraged, that your family dysfunction, your own sin from your past, that you're still experiencing the consequences, none of it can cause God's plans for you specifically, his purpose for you specifically, and his promises to you specifically, Your dysfunction cannot cause his plans to malfunction. That's powerful. And so, Father, we thank you for this uh, graphic and yet wonderful picture of how you work in our lives, many times despite us, despite our past, uh, despite our uh, failure today. But, Lord, you work together with all things according to your plan and your purpose for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose and you have promised to be with us. And so, Lord, help us to deal with our sin. Help us stop uh, giving excuses or uh, focusing on other people's problems. Help us to deal with our own stuff. And thank you that uh, you made the sacrifice that can cleanse us of all unrighteousness if we will but confess and repent of our sin and then trust Jesus that you are going to make us new. And in the meantime, Lord, um, maybe some of us come in here today and we're very aware of our own flesh and the things that we've sown to the flesh and the fruit of our flesh that's still plaguing us today. Father, help us to take courage and encouragement from the family of Jacob that though he is still weak in the faith and he's young in the faith, we're going to see you do amazing things in his life and in the lives of his family and his descendants. And that those these children are born out of a less than uh, stellar family with lots of dysfunction that will continue to manifest itself and probably even get worse. That your plans and your purpose and your calling are still sure. That we're going to see them be fruitful and multiply, and uh, you're going to be with them, and you're going to restore them, and you're going to correct them. Father, thank you for doing that for us. Thank you for never giving up on us. Thank you that your power is greater than our sin and our flesh. And we pray, Father, that all that depends upon us, would you purge our lives of the flesh, and all that depends upon you, would you pour out your Holy Spirit and make us new so that we can produce fruit that bears glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.